You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. Hey, thank you for joining us. Today we have Ebegan, one of the great Twitter personalities that I've come across. And, oh, like, Ebegan does some of the best work in terms of, like, I really love those icebergs you make and the political compass charts. And then some of your essays are just phenomenal. So <laughs> how are you doing, Ebegan? Oh, I'm doing all right. I'm sincerely flattered. It means a lot. I like, uh... I know I'm a massive fan of the Twitter threads that you used to do, and I love Program to Chill, uh, so it's very exciting to be on here. <laughs> yeah, for sure, because I was thinking back, and I was like, I can't even really pinpoint when we started following each other and when I was sort of aware of you, but like, it does feel like it's been a while, <laughs> even though it's on paper, it's probably only been a, maybe less than a year or something i don't know uh definitely less than a year since i haven't even been on like twitter that long but yeah it was a a fast quickly built camaraderie Mm-hmm. yeah like i feel like with covid and everything like time has warped so much for me the past two years but no so okay so i will say this though so you're more than just making you know funny icebergs and memes and stuff like i will say that your essay on the dutro affair was probably the single best concise explanation of it in like one essay that i've ever read and i've read probably most of the breakdowns of it that are in the english language right i don't know i think you cited the isgp website but that is basically like a book length explanation of the dutro affair and it is so hard to like condense it down but like you did like a amazing job thank you yeah i i mean i don't know uh when it comes to writing i sort of naturally tend towards uh brevity and i i just felt like the whole dutro thing was sort of so you know when you talk about deep politics and a lot of that sort of stuff it captures like it's all of the worst like, darkest aspects of it sort of uh, laid out as bare as possible. And, you know, reading about it, uh, really, uh, someone who's, like, not uh, sort of, uh, maybe sort of as conspiracy-minded comes across something like the Dutro affair, and then all of a sudden, a lot of things that sort of seem completely out there in terms of conspiracy theories, like ritual abuse... Or, you know, like, elite abuse rings. All of a sudden, that becomes a lot more conceivable. So I felt that, you know, writing something up on it as sort of this central example of how, like, these sort of deep politics affairs sort of work um, made a lot of sense to me as just something that could introduce someone to the concept and using something that's as well documented as we can get yeah because you're right it really does seem like the dutro affair has like everything it has everything in it and it's about as exposed as we will probably ever get probably i mean i mean like we all dream for like a beautiful day of retribution but realistically we might not get that right well yeah i i I don't think there's probably ever going to be like a 
necessarily a clean revelation of, you know, everything that's gone on behind the scenes, but uh, I certainly think it's sort of like, it's the clearest peek behind the curtain we're going to get, uh, yeah, probably ever, even if there's like some sort of overturn in the world order, we might sort of like get some sort of understanding of what had happened, but you know, it it is it's occult for a reason. It's uh, secretive, and they're not going to be leaving much documentation. Yeah, exactly. So, I will I would recommend to the listener. Ebegin makes uh, what would you say? Maybe weekly, maybe every other week. You make you you release really good essays. So I would encourage listeners to check that out. What was that at Substack, right? Yeah, it's sort of more like once a month uh, at this point. I've been busy with a lot of other stuff, but I try to sort of really, uh, you know, since the output's a little slower, I try to make sure I put more into it. I also uh, write up some uh, shorter essays and notes that's available on my Patreon as well. Um Last Substack essay I released was on the sort of the cultural revolution, actually, which uh, ties into our topic today in some weird ways. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I didn't get to read the cultural rev- revolution one yet, but I am very excited to because, yeah, <laughs> for one thing, there's not that many good sources in English, and I do feel like it's deeply misunderstood uh in the English-speaking world, for one thing. Uh, but the topic today that we are talking about, uh, you'll I guess our listeners probably will know from the episode title, but we're talking about Nazi Maoists, right? Yeah, just, you know, sort of... Uh, the, the best way I can sort of describe it is, like, it sounds like, a, you know, a quote-unquote meme ideology... And there's sort of a way in which it is literally just, like, uh, designed as this memetic agent, but it's not necessarily in sort of the jokey way that we might understand it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it is, on the one hand, one of the funniest things I can think of, but on the other hand, you're right, there was, like, this real legacy that it had, and it was a pretty frightful one. Um, Would you say that... For the most part, most of the Nazi Maoists were concentrated in Europe. Oh, yeah. It's really sort of predominantly, like, like the two main countries that there was any, like, Nazi Maoist presence. And it's a very small relative presence, but it's, like, Italy and Belgium were the main two sort of areas where you had people who were actually, like, calling themselves or being called Nazi Maoists. Now, Italy and Belgium, wait a minute, aren't those the two countries that were most afflicted by Gladio, perhaps? Oh, yeah, well, they are, I I do believe. Interesting. So, okay, so if we're talking Nazi Maoists, being generous, how, about how many people are we even talking about? Because I'm thinking, like, the, from what I was able to read, maybe, like, less than 20 people <laughs> in yeah, all I- of Europe. This was not in any way like a widespread or uh, really big sort of movement. Like you had, 
you had sort of a few people uh, who were like involved in fascism uh, in uh, other like really far right groups who uh, sort of saw I mean sort of to understand it in the context like this is the late 1960s in China we've got the cultural revolution in full swing and sort of like there's this incredible uh appeal that like uh maoism and like revolutionary politics are having with young people you have like may 68 in Mm -hmm. france you have like uh, the New Left and the Black Panthers emerging in uh, America, which is sort of uh, prompting the expansion of COINTELPRO uh, because, you know, like, sort of as maligned as I think the 60s New Left can sort of be in a lot of spaces for being, uh, you know, like, adventurous or uh, full of spooks or whatever. It was definitely, it was significant enough to actually scare the federal government quite a bit. So we have to give them credit for that at least. But this is the sort of uh, backdrop that we have, like these uh, uh, far right uh, leaders in Europe sort of seeing uh, Maoism uh, basically being popular among young people and, taking note of that in in sort of a way and like incorporating mainly the sort of aesthetic idea of maoism as well as like the the conceptions of struggle but into like a decidedly far right fascist uh political ideology i would only add to that that you're right like maoism's brand was real hot in the 60s early 70s uh you know a lot of the things that didn't seem to work with the soviet union you know people perceived to be working in you know maoist china you know whether or not that's true that's a whole other question but like maoism outside of china was like on the upswing for sure and so uh when we say okay when we say maoism i mean obviously there's, there is that difference between Maoism in China and, you know, there's like the Maoism of what Mao actually did in different stages of his life. But like when we talk about Maoism outside of China, we're talking like small Maoist sects, right? And what were those sects like? Well, uh, sort of, depending on the country, you had like the sort of Maoist uh, sects was sort of a first world thing where he had like small groups that uh saw like this idea of engaging in people's war or protracted mm. people's war uh as this means of like uh sort of going out uh and uh joining forces with the working masses and mobilizing them into sort of this guerrilla struggle against the the state effectively um and you know it's sort of there wasn't necessarily that much mileage in a lot of cases like again there was may 68 in which some maoist groups did uh participate but that was also like a very sort of spontaneous uh affair and sort of Maoist uh, groups were, 
you know, generally sort of organized in a lot more meaningful ways in like the Philippines, for example, mm-hmm. where you actually had the the New People's Army and uh, a large scale party organization and that sort of thing. No, like a projected people's war almost makes sense in the Philippine context, but like trying to do that in like Belgium or something doesn't really make sense, right? Yeah, it's, it's sort of, uh, and like protracted people's war wasn't necessarily sort of conceived of in that sort of way that's really like a later specific concept i think uh but you know that sort of approach to like revolutionary struggle was definitely uh not appropriate for like the sort of (laughs) urban context uh, that it was trying to be put into place by with a lot of, uh, you know, Western Maoist groups. Yeah, like the like it makes me think of like Japan, where one of the communist groups that uh, splintered off, I think it was the United Red Army. They basically yeah. had like struggle sessions, like that basically took their group from like. 50 or 60 committed revolutionaries down to like 10 through like killing each other and like driving each other insane because <laughs> they were trying to like enforce ideological purity before they really accomplished anything really nutty stuff but like if you look at something like peru right with the sendero luminoso the shining path that like almost succeeded in terms of like revolution like they almost like they weren't that far, maybe, from actually... Yeah, like, there was... They successfully managed to seize a considerable amount of the countryside and sort of... Mm-hmm. For all their faults, they controlled a lot of territory, and at the end of the day, that, like... That shows you're doing at least something right in terms of uh, military tactics, at least. Uh, but there was yeah. definitely nothing sort of comparable to that... Uh, in, like, the West. I mean, like, the closest I can think of might have been, like, the Red Army faction, and even then they sort of had, like, their ups and downs and never, like, controlled territory or anything. And they were, like, they had, like, a weird position to, like, like China anyway like they were like very weird like I mean in terms of like from a Marxist perspective but yeah no absolutely I I hear what you're saying so okay so if Maoism outside of China consists of sort of like a set of attitudes and tactics then what would attract far right or a sliver of far-right groups to Maoism? Well, uh, I think that in a lot of ways, what sort of... uh, In sort of describing uh, what would have attracted, like, these far-right individuals to Maoism, you sort of got to talk about, like, the specific intellectuals who were uh, sort of seizing on it, and in the Italian context, where you sort of first get this whole Nazi Maoist appellation, you've got a guy like uh, uh, Franco Freda, 
uh, warning just ahead of time, I can like butcher uh, any pronunciation. That sounds pretty accurate to me. We're going to butcher some French, both of us probably, but I'm pretty sure you said that right for Italian, so. All right, well, so Fredo was like this fairly young, uh, far-right Italian uh intellectual i suppose uh he came from a very well educated uh background he was only born in like 1941 actually so at the point that like he was conceiving of like nazi maoism as this concept he was only like 28 i think because uh, this was like in 1969 uh so he's this neo-fascist, neo-Nazi, into Mussolini, Hitler, involved in sort of Italian neo-fascist movements, uh, very big fan of uh, Evola and sort of that sphere of, like, esoteric fascist stuff. Yeah, I think I, think I saw that he was a socialist, like, he was from, like, a socialist family, I think. Or at least he started his career sort of as a socialist and then sort of went far right, which it seems like Italians are often want to do, right? Yeah, it's sort of, uh, you know, that's the origin story of, like, uh, Italy's biggest fascist, even. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so uh, Freda sort of... Uh, in 1969, writes this uh, book where sort of he takes a really strong deviation from the standard sort of uh, anti-communist uh, stance that's like almost defining of uh, most fascist movements uh, and sort of says, you know, uh, the main enemy that we face in Italy is uh, liberal capitalism, democracy. As fascists, we have more in common with this uh, insurgent youthful force that's trying to uh, smash uh, uh, this same enemy that we have we should try to make overtures to the far left and communists to sort of bring them into our own movement and incorporate sort of things that they do. Um, because, uh, and that sort of, he even sort of, uh, says that like, uh, fascism and communism both have this shared goal of like recreating, a Plato's Republic, uh, type society that's like collectivist and ruled by philosopher kings uh, <laughs> and so oh this uh, is where he sort of gets titled like a, a Nazi Maoist and uh, sort of around uh, this conception comes like uh, groups like uh, Struggle of the People who are who love uh, Freda's ideas and uh, position themselves as like 
third positionists who aren't capitalist or communist uh, and want what they call a fascist dictatorship of the proletariat. Wait a minute, he begging. Isn't third positionism like a Clinton thing? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, that's basically basically the same thing. <laughs> Bill Clinton is like the the world's uh, most successful Nazi Maoist, honestly. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> All right, but yeah, so the Nazi Maoists. Uh, want to form a, a fascist dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, they want to use the strategy of people's war to overthrow capitalism and the state and institute their fascist... Uh, well, they say it's not communist, but they say they're also drawing on the far-left ideas of Maoism. So, I guess, like, Platonist dictatorship <laughs> it sounds like a larushian thing almost <laughs> <laughs> well you know he, larouche did have a sort of similar thing where it was like uh, neither left nor right uh and also like made overtures wait a minute isn't that a yang thing <laughs> I, I, yeah i mean yeah well Clinton, LaRouche, Yang, and Freda basically all have the same politics. <laughs> now, speaking of murderous politics, what did Freda get up to <laughs> apart from all this theorizing? Well, you know, uh, aside from uh, theorizing these sorts of things, he was also uh, involved in, well, sort of... He spent a lot of time around this uh, group called uh, Ordine Nuovo, uh, which basically means uh, New Order, which fascist Italian group, uh, very fond of Evola's ideas. Uh, Freda was never formally a member, but... You can only spend so much time around guys who are all a part of the same group before you start getting lumped in. <laughs> I mean, whomst among us does not fall in with a group of terrorists, right? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, what uh, Ordine Nuovo are probably uh, best known is, like, uh, engaging in this uh, little affair called the Piazza Fontana uh, bombing, where basically uh, they blew up a, a agricultural bank uh, in Milan, Italy, uh, which killed 17 people and wounded a whole bunch of others, um, and also detonated several other bombs. Now, with the Piazza Fontana bombing, they initially blamed it on some anarchists, right? Yeah, exactly. And this was sort of towards the beginning of what was known as the Years of Lead in Italy, where there was a lot of back-and-forth uh, violence between uh, far-left and far-right groups that basically formed a sort of proto-Civil War conflict that never completely boiled over into, like, outright warfare but got like 
up as close at, as you can pretty much get. Yeah. So they blamed it on these anarchists, one of whom uh, was basically, as far as they can tell, thrown out of a window. They said that he committed suicide jumping out the window while being interrogated. Uh, but as you might expect, you know, that's a, oh, he confessed and then he killed himself. You know, the police just threw him out the window. Yeah, incredibly convenient. And then over time, it basically became apparent, we're talking over decades, that like, basically fascists did this and then they blamed it on anarchists to try to, you know, basic. So what is the, like, so it's strategy of tension, right? So what what was the purpose, basically? Yeah, exactly. Uh, sort of uh, part of the idea was uh, you have far-right groups that engage in these sort of, uh, you know, uh, violent activities, um, uh, blowing uh, things up, specifically pin it on communists, and then encourage a sort of uh, crackdown on those communists and... Uh, increased power to uh, police and a more militarized state and a lot of things that generally tend to benefit fascists. Yeah, so, I mean, essentially with Franco Freda, like, whenever, okay, maybe I should say, when whenever you hear third positionism, what it really is is a fascist trick. I, I like, I would say that. I don't know if you would agree. I mean, I'd say that in third positionist movements, you can probably find people who legitimately believe that, like, oh, hey, yeah, we're doing something different from capitalism and communism, but the people in charge and the people who are going to actually direct the movement are always just fascists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. And I will say, so later on, uh, Fredo was in Costa Rica, and... He was so he was basically in that clique of Italian fascists traveling all over, especially Latin America. Um, I know that a lot of the terrorist actions against Cuba were organized out of like Panama and Costa Rica and Colombia. It seems like he was part of that uh, movement and that network, uh, although the evidence is a little bit more sparse for that. I think so. I, I think that what sort of is going on is that Freda was sort of uh, pinned as one of the people who, you know, after a few years and like it becoming very obvious that this was not actually uh, anarchists in uh, like, yeah, in, in the 70s, they realized, oh, it's uh, actually uh, Ordine Nuovo it's probably uh, these guys, and Freda was one of them, even if he wasn't technically a member of uh, ON. Um, so he gets uh, accused, and sort of they are very slow in actually apprehending him. It's like a decade after uh, the fact he's... Pretty much like he flees country to Costa Rica. He's found uh, he's found guilty and uh, sentenced to life in prison, I think. Uh, but and but then when he's actually extradited, there are uh, some trials, and it's basically 
he gets his sentence overturned for a quote-unquote lack of evidence. (laughs) So basically he gets away with it. And then in the 90s, he tries to (laughs) start the National Front. So basically restarting the Italian Fascist Party, which is illegal, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) And then I think he gets convicted of that. Yeah, it's it's very much like no, this isn't this it's a different strain. It, completely different. <laughs> no, I swear this time it won't be the same. That that was the Italian uh, fascist party. This is the Italian party of fascists. Entirely different. Entirely different movement. So, that is Franco Freda who I think is a good introduction to Nazi Maoism. Now, it only gets weirder from here, I'm telling the listeners, of course. So, who's who's the next guy we should talk about? Should we talk about uh, Jean-Francois, I'm going to butcher this, Derriart? Uh I think Derriart's probably a good place to start, just because, uh, yeah, he's like the other main quote-unquote Nazi Maoist, and uh, he, like, with Freda, there are sort of some tenuous ties to Operation Gladio just because of, like, the strategy of tension and Ordina Nuovo's, like, strong ties to it. But theory arts where, like, the Gladio ties become a lot more obvious, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about him. So right off the bat, he's from Belgium. So like we were saying, the other <laughs> Gladio country, basically. Yeah. Um, te- technically, it's all of Europe, but those were like the hot spots, I guess you could say. Yeah, like maybe also throw in Turkey, probably, just because they've like their politics have been like permanently effed up by uh, <laughs> Gladio. You heard it here first, folks. Ebegin considers Turkey part of Europe. <laughs> I'm just, just kidding. <laughs> I don't care either way. <laughs> All right. So Terry Art, he's Belgian, born 1922, died 1992. And I think you were saying that he actually also came from a left-wing family. Yeah. Uh, left-leaning sort of family uh clearly has sort of a bit of a rebellious streak i would say considering that when he turns his 18 he and this is 1940 he becomes a collaborator with the nazi occupiers and joins the waffen ss it's a real record scratch moment (laughs) (laughs) yeah sort of So, you know, like, not a, not even a neo-Nazi, an OG. <laughs> Literally in the SS. So, I see that he had to serve time in prison for his collaboration. <laughs> yeah, he spends, like, uh, he, he spends a little while in prison, uh, not particularly long. He's able to get out after a while. He becomes a, an optometrist, so like an eye doctor, basically. Uh, and basically as soon as he gets out of prison, he starts getting involved in, like, uh, the far right again. (laughs) Going back on his bullshit. Yeah. Uh, Lord, Lord help me, I'm going back to the old me. (laughs) 
All right. So in Belgium, now we should say uh, for the listeners, at least I, I would say this, I'm not necessarily going to loop you in, but like Belgium probably has always been ruled by literal pedophiles. <laughs> like yeah. I'm not being hyperbolic, like actual pedophiles. I, I think Nutro like definitely uh, makes it like obvious beyond just sort of being a francophonic country. Yeah, like so I read a book about the uh the Congo, you know, being ruled by Belgium basically. And I think it was King Leopold, I forget which one, the one during World War 1, I, I believe. So I want to say like Leopold II or something. He was like literally a pedophile too. So it's just like oh, how God. long has this always been the case? <laughs> Yeah, he had like a 15-year-old mistress. Yeah, I mean, with a lot of these guys, it's sort of... I mean, if you've read, like, I, obviously, probably, if you have uh, if you listen to Program, you know Program to Kill, the namesake. Uh, but, you mm-hmm. know, it talks about how uh, for basically up until the late 20th century when there is a the serious uh, second wave feminist movement and like actual interest in rights of children like child abuse and pedophilia are rampant and almost like not even considered taboo in a lot of ways and like you know they're sort of in that sort of sense child abuse rings are almost like related to the actual emergence of understanding that child abuse is actually uh, a problem and fucking awful And prior to that, it's just, like, practiced in the open by, uh, like, wealthy people or members of the power elite. Yeah, and, like, I don't necessarily know if it's always overtly connected, but, like, it seems like there's a strong correlation between that and, like, imperialism. Because, like, the two countries that seem about the most intensely afflicted with pedophilia at the highest levels would be, like, the United Kingdom and Belgium. And those are just happen to be like the <laughs> two of the most uh, imperialist countries, I guess you could say. Yeah, just like the most brutal colonizers in history. Yeah, so basically Belgium in the 40s, 50s, and 60s was in the process of losing their colonies, which is to say like mainly the Congo for Belgium. And Art was involved in that, right? Uh, yeah, so sort of... Right after getting out of prison, he becomes really, really into sort of, well, he's sort of two, uh, he's got two big political projects. One is like anti-decolonization. He he wants uh, Belgium to keep control of the Congo. Um, and so he joins uh, Mouvement de Action Civique. Which is sort of this, uh, you know, really far-right group that wants to basically head into the Congo and uh, make sure by force that it stays in uh, Belgian hands. And it's sort of, and in that sense, it's very closely aligned with uh, this French far-right group, uh, the Organisation Armée Secrète. Uh, which basically has the same thing, but with Algeria, which is going through a very uh, similar 
process at the time. Now, the OAS, I think they were the guys that were trying to assassinate de Gaulle. Oh, yes, that was that was them, actually. It's, it's really interesting because you sort of have... There was basically, yeah, these uh, shadow wars going on in France between, like, uh, two different, basically, gladio factions or gladio equivalents where one was pro-de Gaulle and wanted to keep him on... Uh, protected but was still basically otherwise really far right and the other were like hated the gaul because he was willing to sacrifice being a colonial power for like the immediate interests of france at the time yeah and like while i'm personally agnostic on the question a lot of people have speculated that it might have been an oas mercenary that actually shot jfk (laughs) i i mean there are so many like possibilities as to who the particular person who shot JFK was but like them being some form of gladio agent uh, it isn't that far-fetched to me uh, mm-hmm. there's a, an extremely out there wacky uh, theory that I am fond of purely because I think it would you know be cool in a book or a movie uh i'm i I imagine you're probably uh familiar with like uh the scorzani one uh that scorzani was involved in the jfk uh assassination that that sort of like uh the idea that they just outright got scorzani to assassinate jfk i think would be the that's the most cinematic option like if i'm if I'm remaking JFK, that's the one I'm going to go with purely for, like, the the outlandishness factor. Yeah, I feel like Mae Brussel was, like, a big proponent of, like, the the Nazis are actually in, <laughs> behind every nefarious thing that the CIA is doing, which I have, you know, some issues with. But, like, Scorzani being in the mix is certainly interesting to think about. Yeah, I mean... I think in that case, it's sort of like getting the order mixed up. Like, heart's in the right <laughs> place. You just don't know necessarily who's giving orders to who. Exactly, exactly. So, okay, so Thierry Art, he was involved with anti-decolonization. And then he was also involved in this other group. And I'm putting off saying it because I don't want to make... <laughs> Maybe I'll try. Okay, you tried the other group, so... June Europe? Uh, yeah, June Europe. Uh, basically, uh, they're fascists, but they're they're pan-European nationalists as well, which is sort of an interesting twist on that. So, you know, like, you could, you could probably say they're the predecessors to the European Union or something. <laughs> Wait a minute, you're telling me the European Union? <laughs> no, I mean, I think you're... Right. <laughs> so, okay, so this group, the the uh, if we translate the title, it means Young Europe. And, yeah, it's like a pan-European nationalist, like, far-right group, right? Yeah, and sort of, like, technically, as leader of Young Europe, Thierry Artisitional stance is like, okay, guys, I'm not a fascist, I'm just... Pan, I'm a 
I want a united, strong European nation. Anyway, I'm going to go visit my friends Oswald Mosley and Otto Strasser uh, <laughs> and some former SS agents to help work on my magazine. I'm not a fascist. Yes, I was in the SS, but I am not a fascist now. <laughs> so I'm seeing that young Europe, uh, Tyriart advocated for a united Europe that was neither Moscow nor Washington. Now, neither Moscow nor Washington, I know that, like, they were advocating for that, but, like, I have <laughs> seen a lot of Trotskyists also advocate for neither Moscow nor Washington. Uh, well, you, uh, you, you could say Trotsky, he, he, was the, uh, he was the original pan-European nationalist. He was the original Nazi Maoist. <laughs> Yeah, Trotsky was a, a Nazi Maoist before the Nazis or Maoism was a thing. <laughs> now, I am encouraging the listeners to look up on Wikipedia, type in June Europe, Young Europe, and see this logo that they have, right? You see the logo, and it is, how would you describe it? They say it's a Celtic cross, but to me it looks like a, like a cross-eye right yeah it's it's that uh sort of celtic cross sun wheel sort of thing that's really uh popular uh with uh basically people who want to who want to use a swastika but know they'll get in trouble like on the internet or with like anti-nazi laws uh speaking of though if you google the zodiac killer symbol Wait a minute. It's the same exact symbol. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I actually, uh, interestingly, I think I saw a, sort of this theory that, like, uh, you, you know the whole thing where, like, uh, Manson and uh, his family, uh, uh, like, carved swastikas into their he uh, foreheads uh, when they were appearing at trial. And sort of the thing I saw was that Oh, it was supposed to be like an X with a circle around it, basically. And like sort of, uh, I don't know, just like there's lots of uses of that like uh, cross in the circle that are weird and sort of a little occulty that like at that point I'm getting into the world of pure speculation but it's really fascinating stuff yeah no i mean we're talking nazi maoism i feel like we're in the realm of speculation already right <laughs> yeah like we, we can afford to get a little weird so okay so i'm seeing that young europe basically they had a magazine i think it was called like nation europa yeah nation europa and uh so Basically, like, uh, Theriard gets some fellow former SS uh, people to help him out with uh, Nation Europa. And wait, wait a minute, former SS were helping with this magazine? Well, it, I mean, he's, he's just getting his buddies back, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get this whole squad together. Yeah. Look. We might have all have been in the SS together, but we're not fascist guys, okay? 
Also, um, I don't know if you saw this, but Nation Europa magazine was based in Coburg, <laughs> which is, of course, the base of the Duchy of Saxe-Coburg. Oh. <laughs> which, of course, is the, you know, the British. Uh, it all ties back to them. <laughs> Holy shit. Hold on. Let me send this to you. I'm sending you a link. Do you see the coat of arms for Coburg? Oh my god. Oh, what the hell are they doing? What the fuck is that? Coburg's coat of arms honoring the town's German patron Saint Saint Maurice um, was granted in 1493. In 1934, the Nazi government forbade any glorification of the black German race, and they replaced the coat of arms with one depicting a vertical sword with a Nazi swastika on the pommel. Okay, Uh, so for the listeners here, I know this is an audio medium, but if you look at the (laughs) coat of arms for the Coburg, the city of Coburg, it's basically a black person, but like I would say vaguely racist, would you say? Yeah, I mean, it also looks like it was made in 1493 and yes. It's intended to be like a flattering portrait of a saint, so I I don't know. It's complicated feelings here. Okay. So, not directly related, but that's wild. Okay. So, yeah, their magazine, Terry Art, was trying to make uh, connections with the Cuchescu regime in Romania, which does, in fact, seem kind of like a closer to the national socialism <laughs> than most, you know, left-wing people are comfortable with, right? Yeah, like, uh, basically, uh, sort of around this time... Uh, Terry Art's interested in, like, sort of what's going on in Romania and this conception of, like, national communism, which, you know, is, like, more overtly left-wing in its economics, at least, but at the same time is, like, decidedly sort of contrary to the most basic tenets of Marxism by virtue of the whole, like national chauvinism aspect Mm -hmm. absolutely and then i'm seeing here that uh there was a (laughs) a guy who was in young europe who later joined the red brigades which to me sounds honestly more like infiltration than anything else yeah i i I would be skeptical of someone uh coming in from that (laughs) does not seem like particularly a trustworthy individual to have on board uh so yeah here's uh something interesting um so you've got like uh national europa uh which is this magazine uh that uh, Thierry Art and uh, Young Europe is working on. And one of the collaborators on uh, Nation Europa is uh, this name, I'm definitely going to butcher, like Emile uh, Le Cerf. Uh, basically, Le Cerf is also the editor for this uh, magazine called uh, Nouvelle Europe uh, Magazine, or NEM, we can call it. 
Uh, and NEM is founded, uh, these would be uh, listeners' employers, uh, by oh, Baron Benoit de Bonvoisin. Uh, and that one I definitely uh, mangled. And uh, Paul Vanden Boynans, uh, who are two like big time players in like the Belgian right wing political elite, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boynans was like prime minister of Belgium from sixty six to sixty eight, and then later from seventy eight to seventy nine. And uh, Boynvonsin is like. You know, uh, Baron, uh, very involved in sort of, uh, funding a lot of far right groups and is like a main political ally, ally of Boynants. Uh, they're both, uh, sort of heavily, uh, tied into this group called like, uh, Circles des Nations, uh, another sort of, like, far-right anti-communist group, but most especially, uh, they have two very strong ties to, uh, conspiracy aspects. Uh, so one is that, uh, their magazine, NEM, which Le Cerf is an editor for, is involved in setting up, uh, groups like, uh, Front de la Junus. Jeunesse, uh, the West, uh, Westland New Post, and, uh... Whoa, I know that one. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, this, uh, little operation called Group G, which, uh, was basically intended to infiltrate the fascist, uh, gendarmerie. So... All of these are, like, far-right paramilitaries that are getting uh, backing from Bon uh, Voicine and Boyanans. So, NEM is basically a a gladio cutout. Uh, To to make a long story short, without going into detail uh, right away into all of these, like, big groups. So... That's one thing going on. Uh, and then there's also, like, just to complicate things further, Bonvoisin and Boynance are, like, the huge political players who are implicated in, like, the Dutro-Nihol uh, trafficking ring from the Dutro affair. I was going to ask, do you, so do you think that the Westland New Post guys were the Brabant killers? I, I don't think that there's, like... If they weren't the Brabant killers, they were immediately adjacent to whoever the Brabant killers were. Like, I do not think that it's, like, at all possible that they weren't at least indirectly connected. Yeah, I mean, whether they were literally the killers, they definitely knew them, right? Like, they were, like... Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right there. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, that's that's who uh, Theory Art is... uh, hanging out with in the early 1960s sort of before a lot of that stuff happens but (laughs) that's a pretty like that's a very spooky connection and like 
theory art and Le Cerf are supposed to become like alienated from one another around like the mid 1960s when theory art starts getting more into national communism and the sort of a proto Nazi Maoist uh, concept but there's we'll probably get into later why they probably weren't really that alienated from one another (laughs) so okay so young Europe was also pretty tight with the like explicitly neo-Nazi party in like West Germany the what's how do you say it? the Deutsche Reichsparty? Yeah, I yes, uh, because of like Hans Ulrich, uh, Rudel basically was putting in advertisements for uh, June Europe, basically like, uh, hey, do you want uh, neo-Nazi, uh, globe-trotting <laughs> uh, psycho <laughs> doing shit for you? Yeah. Uh, it's me, Hans Ulrich Rudel, uh, as seen in World War Two. Who was <laughs> he? Was literally like a fighter pilot. Like these are like neo These are both Nazis and neo Nazis. Yeah, like they were bridging the old school and the new school. So, um, so Tyriar actually, uh. He, this is what fascinates me, especially. I mean, all of it's interesting, but like, he was specifically, support, or at least giving like lip service to national like liberation in the third world. Yeah, and I think that is like what really sets him apart. Maybe even though he was literally involved in anti decolonization earlier, he now switches basically. Yeah, he right? becomes big on like sort of, uh, uh, you know, saying positive things about, like, uh, a lot of Latin American revolutionaries. He's he's positive on, like, the Palestinians, but then again, that sort of... <laughs> he, he, I wonder why. Yeah, like, the Nazi being positive about Palestinians, it's not usually motivated from, like, the same principled anti-imperialist stance as... Um, so, <laughs> so this is what fascinates me, because, like, basically the moment, like, decolonization theory and, like, these real movements pop up, immediately Terry Art is like, yes, that's what that's what Europeans need to do for themselves. <laughs> yeah, it's very... It's very uh, sort of interesting uh, switchover uh, all of a sudden uh, around the time that, yeah, like Maoism and decolonization are becoming really popular uh, in sort of like an emergent left movement and among a lot of young people. Uh, So, like in 1965, as an extension of young Europe, he starts uh, the let's see, I think it's uh, Parti uh, Communitary Europe European I think it's called Ah, I might have uh, mingled that one uh, basically uh, an attempt to form 
you know, another sort of pan-European party, and that's where he's trying to reach out to a bunch of, like, left-leaning groups by saying, hey, we're just like you. We want, you know, we like the Latin American revolutionaries. We like the black nationalists. We like Palestine. We're not that different. Let's let's bridge the gap and, you know, sort of... At the same time, then he's hanging out with uh, uh, the people at Agentir Press. Oh, boy. Yeah. So I can go into depth on uh, them, if you uh, might like. Uh, yeah, let's do it. All right. So late 60s, early 70s, same time that's like theory arts going in on the whole Nazi Maoist uh, gimmick and like, hey, we just want... We, we we just want like a united national communist Europe. It's and we can like leave all that colonization stuff in, in the past. Yay, national liberation! It's fine. Uh, at the same time, uh, like he's associating with uh, this uh, mercenary organization uh, that sets itself up as a news agency in uh, Portugal. That's fascist uh so agentir press was founded by uh oh okay here's another name i'm gonna butcher uh, yves uh, guerin sirac uh anyway guerin sirac is uh one of the founders of the oas who we mentioned earlier uh who had the same like very hardline anti-colonialist goals and uh, Algeria wanted to murder uh, de Gaulle, uh, and like the oh, basically, Agentir Press is a continuation of OAS in a lot of ways. So, once again, theory art, he he's going back to the old him. He he, <laughs> he can't go back. He he's got to keep. He can't. He keeps coming back. Uh, so. And, like, Guerin Sirac is, like, the most, one of the most gladio guys to ever do it. Uh, because He's, he was a he was a real lunch pail nine to five gladio operative. Yeah, it was like, gladio was his life. Uh, I mean, first of all, he was a paratrooper, which has got to be, like, the, the most sus- uh, position in the military. Every every time I look into this stuff, it's always the paratroopers who are really tied up in like the Gladio or some sort of secret network. You would have to be literally either in intelligence or signals to be any more sus than a paratrooper, basically. <laughs> yeah, basically. So Guerin Sirac was uh, a member of this specific group of paratroopers uh the 11th regiment uh parachutiste de choc which was very chummy with the french sdece intelligence agency which was basically just a gladio cutout and then he was also involved in helping organize the strategy of tension during the Italian years of lead, which our aforementioned Freda was <laughs> involved in and all but 
implicated as a direct uh, participant in. Uh, he was a founding member of the OAS too. Like, yeah. What the heck? This this guy was he he was in it from day one. He was on board with like you could not find a more obvious like gladio neo fascist. So like you know, and basically Argentina Press was setting itself up as like hey we are here to uh you got like a communist uh movement in uh only nominally colonized or still colonized country we will come in and uh murder them all so if when you've got theory art being very close friends with Guerin Sirac who's also still friends with uh Emile Le Cerf suggesting a that that earlier split was only nominal and also that you know the theory arts uh lip service and national liberation or any sort of like left uh tendency related to this whole quote-unquote national communism thing is entirely service level and he's still a neo-fascist yeah, like, so, a Ginter Press got, so, okay, they would send basically assassins all over the world uh, undercover as reporters or photographers, <laughs> and they would show up in Spain, uh, Indonesia, in Greece, South Africa, so basically they were sending hitmen all over right-wing areas to do their dirty work, and... Later, after Portugal had, I guess you could say, kind of like a liberal revolution, because it was sort of a dictatorship, then this organization moved to Latin America. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, well, they're sort of like, uh, they don't even uh, go to Latin America first. First, they stop by Spain to visit the Paladin Group. Ding, ding, ding. Founded by Otto Scorzani. <laughs> and then, with their help, they head to uh, Caracas, Venezuela. <laughs> so, yeah, just... <laughs> this is who uh, Thierry Art is hanging out with when he's uh, saying, like, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a hip-happening guy who's down with... You know, the, the Che Guevara and the Black Panthers. Hey, come check out our uh, European National Third Positionist Party. So, if it isn't obvious at this point, like, the Parti Communitari uh, European was just set up to weaken and split the Communist Party of Belgium. <laughs> Which... Can I just say, I know you know, but like, that's literally what the LaRouche organization did too. <laughs> they basically yes. split, what was it, the SDS, or helped split the SDS, I think. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> oh man, uh, and then, I mean, that's not even going into like LaRouche's own connections to like OSS guys and neo-Nazis and mm -hmm. like... 
basically domestic gladio jeez um a whole nother episode honestly seriously so okay but i will say this so um you know how i'm doing this series on the krupp steel fortune and like business right yeah and so i think that this episode will probably come out after but basically the krupp steel company after world war ii they spent a considerable amount of their time going all over the third world selling things like literally like we will make a dam for you you know we'll make a factory start to finish you know we can make infrastructure and they would approach essentially mainly like right-wing third world countries and sell them german industry right yeah and what they would do would be to basically position themselves as like, we are German. We were defeated and oppressed by the British, by the Americans. We know what you're going through. We can help. And like, <laughs> so like, at least the leaders of these countries were like, absolutely, let's sign a deal. And naturally, then the Germans would be able to spy. Obviously, there was like a nazi underground in latin america and lord knows they were in the middle east too and but like what's interesting to me is that yes all of this like nazi maoism sounds like crazy bullshit but like it actually was very close to what the krupp company was talking about is what blows me away yeah yeah it is it sort of makes clear that there is a very obvious sort of crypto-fascist tactic, like, I mean, in some cases, not even crypto, just sort of mm-hmm. it, where it's like there are these nominal overtures to of some form of leftism or communism that are entirely meaningless when you look at what is actually being done by these people. Yeah. So, Terry Art uh, well, for one thing, his dream was a empire, a European empire from Dublin to Vladivostok. He called it a Euro, a Euro-Soviet empire. Yeah, I mean, it might be sounding a little familiar to some people. <laughs> and I feel like if you throw in some high-speed trains, you basically also have like a Larusian grand vision, basically, right? Yeah, like. Again, this, there's a lot of crossover between sort of these uh, third positionists who will make, you know, these overtures towards uh, leftism, but then end up, uh, you know, associating with some interesting people. <laughs> so towards the end of his life, Terry Art... Uh, he got. Uh, he started working with Alexander Dugan. Now, for the listeners, who is Dugan? Uh, Alexander uh, Dugan's <laughs> uh, fascinating guy, honestly. Um, basically, a uh, Russian philosopher, uh, political guy, sort of uh, another <laughs> Evola fan. Um, grows up in sort of. Uh, you know, like born in 
1962 uh, comes of age towards the end of the Soviet Union. Uh, in like in the 1980s, he's involved in like Nazi Satanist groups, uh, which you, you love to see it. Yeah, always, always interesting. Uh, so in the 1980s, he's like a Satanist Russian fascist, basically. Uh, but then he starts making some weird turns because, like, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, he helps write the political program for the Communist Party of the Russian Federation in 1993. So, definitely uh, going off in some very uh, interesting directions there. And then sort of later on, he publishes, like, Foundations of uh, Geopolitics, which is sort of like uh, his fan fiction on, like, Russia coming back to uh, dominance and, uh, you know, like, establishing itself as this Eurasian superpower uh, that uh, puts itself back on top Uh which, I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of people who uh, then sort of go and like, oh, this is exactly what Putin is uh, doing, but it it sort of, it is a lot more uh, grandiose than any actual uh, Russian uh, geopolitics that's actually being implemented. Yeah, I would say that like, um, especially as I, listen to more actual Russians rather than like English, like English speaking people who comment on Russia. Like from what I've heard, people don't like the average Russian and even like people like not that, like from what I've heard, Dugan is not actually that influential in Russia. No, he's like influential in the far right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, I, Dugan is not a major. He he is not a major political uh, figure in any sort of conventional uh, sense. He's more sort of just like, in terms of the global far right, he's he he has like relative popularity, but he is not he he's not like a he is not some sort of modern Rasputin. Yeah. Exactly. Now, his book, The Fourth Political Theory. Now, <laughs> uh, what were the first three? <laughs> well, you, you know, you've got liberal democracy, Marxism, and fascism. Uh, and so Dugan comes along and says, you know, like, all right, I know you've heard of third positionism. <laughs> but coming out now, fourth positionism. Eh? Eh? How about that? Which, you know, as someone who, like, makes up meme ideologies, I have to respect the hustle. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, when can we expect fifth position? I'm I'm, I'm working on it right now. (laughs) Sweet. All right. Yeah. (laughs) So, (laughs) So Dugan also, I think, probably most famously, other than his writing, which is probably the thing he's most famous for, 
Dugan, and not, like, we'll get back to Terry Art, like, but, like, Dugan founds the National Bolshevik Party. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and he founds it with a guy named Edward Limonov, who I know a lot of people who are watching, like, Adam Curtis documentaries, like, maybe know the Limonov story. Yeah, and I mean, I, I guess to sort of fill them in, basically, Limonov is, uh... A guy who sort of witnesses the collapse of the Soviet Union while he's visiting uh, the West uh, is very sort of heavily involved in like punk subculture stuff and then, uh, you know, gets involved in basically like uh, national uh, the conception of national Bolshevism, which is actually sort of it goes all the way to back to like the 1930s and like these weird uh, uh, German uh, uh, dissidents from the Nazi Party who were disappointed by how little socialist content was actually in the party and became like anti-Nazi, like. Uh, uh, fighters during like uh, World War Two, which is weird and stuff. Uh, but basically, like Limonov and uh, Dugan form National Bolshevism because it's sort of it's got the same tendency that a decent number of like historical fascist parties have, where they want a rejuvenation of sort of national greatness but because it's russia for them national greatness was like the soviet union under stalin's leadership so it becomes very very different than uh a lot of other conceptions of like fascist movements in that particular respect yeah and like i would say a couple things so lomonov like it's so funny because, like, if you watch at the freaking Adam Curtis documentaries, he seems to love Limonov. But, like, what no one ever seems to, like, realize is that, like, Limonov defected to the West and then spent a bunch of time writing about how much the West sucks. And the thing is, no, he was, like, working for the KGB. Like, no one seems to want to talk about that. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> don't get me started on the weird politics around Lomonov. I will say this, though. It's very funny. So he wrote a book about his time in New York City called It's Me, Eddie, right? Uh, the French title, I, I'm pretty sure it's the French title, was The Russian Poet Prefers Big Blacks. <laughs> Which is just hilarious. Um, no, because, yeah, he was basically a punk poet, and then he just you know, came back to Russia as Russia was basically being raped. And I, listen, I'm not, like, I'm not sympathetic to national Bolshevism, but if I was in the 90s in Russia, the early 90s, seeing all this stuff, like, I don't blame some people for falling for this particular trick, right? Like, yeah. think, it was an incredibly crazy time to be in Russia. Yeah, like... When you have, like, uh, 
you know, the total gutting of any resemblance of a functioning uh, state and, like, going further into the 90s, like, uh, supposed liberal Democrat Yeltsin, like, bombing parliament to prevent communists from coming into power, uh, you, you, you can really easily see why people would be like, yeah, anyone who can bring back, like, the stability and, uh, like, re relative peace of the Soviet Union is gonna... You can see where they're coming from, even if they end up falling for people who don't really have those best intentions. Exactly. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, okay. Now, let's see here. If we go back to Tyriart, uh, there's one, probably one other main point that I want to hit up, which was his concept of political soldiers. Which... This is a very interesting concept because he was very into this idea. It's an idea related to third positionism, but basically it's almost similar to like a lone wolf. <laughs> like in my mind, I think it's very similar, but it basically comes out of Evola's writings, I think. And it's, kind of also informed by like the communist new man idea but as far as i can tell it's just like like how would you describe the political soldier i'm trying to like convey I mean, it i think basically uh i mean the nominal uh surface level understanding is yeah we're forging like uh an aristocratic uh individual in sort of the same model as like the and the sort of classical uh, warrior men of old, very sort of macho political revolutionary uh, uh, figure. But what it ultimately comes out to is like, basically you're just training <laughs> like uh, fascists who are willing to shoot someone up with a gun. Yeah. And like, Lord knows we've seen like the tactic of a lone wolf basically uh, being weaponized both by like far right Islam and also neo-Nazis. I don't think it's very different from the concept of political soldier, honestly. Yeah, it's, it's sort of just a very gussied up conception of we want to radicalize someone and put a weapon in their hands and uh, framing it as like uh, some sort of heroic individualism is appealing to young people who think they're in a revolutionary period in the world. Exactly. All right, we're back. Um, so I was tracking down one or two loose ends with uh, discussing the legacy of national Bolshevism. So one thing off the bat is the <laughs> that the uh, Avram Stern of the Stern Gang uh, in Israel, uh, or I guess it wasn't Israel yet, uh, I guess the terrorist leader Avram Stern, he was a uh, big 
proponent of national Bolshevism for Israel. Oh, wow. That's pretty that's cool. <laughs> fascinating intersection. There. And, <laughs> and then, so there was a uh, Indian gentleman named Subhas Chandra Bose. Real Dave Emery fans are going to know what I'm talking about, but Subhas Chandra Bose was a Indian nationalist leader in the 40s who called for a synthesis between national socialism and communism to take root in India. Now, that arguably didn't happen, though I think that perhaps India is heading in that direction now. But notably, a, another gentleman named Saikot Chakrabarti is a huge fan of Subhas Chandra Bose. Now, Saikot... <laughs> Chakrabarti, uh, has an interesting career. So he, uh, he's in the U S he attended Harvard. Then he worked at wall street and Silicon Valley <laughs> where he founded a web design company called mockingbird. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, uh, helped set up Stripe, which I think got acquired by PayPal. I'm pretty sure. You know, owned by Peter Thiel. <laughs> anyway, after that, Psychot Chakrabarti went on to join the Bernie Sanders campaign. He worked with the Justice Democrats, and then he was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's chief of staff. The greatest now, living national Bolshevik. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was going to ask, Ebegan, in your expert opinion, is AOC a national Bolshevik? Absolutely. Uh, I, I, <laughs> she, she's a national Bolshevik, and she's the heir to LaRouche's legacy, I think. Uh, when, when, she, when she goes for that Senate seat, she's going to be talking a lot about that Verdi pitch. <laughs> I swear, if any episode actually gets me in trouble, it's going to be this one. <laughs> Though getting in trouble is not real, so whatever. Okay, so let's see. We talked about national Bolshevism. Now, okay, let's see. Now, <laughs> we talked about how a lot of this ties to Gladio. A lot of the this weird positioning of Nazis as Maoists, it's... <laughs> It's on the one hand, it's a trick, but on the other hand, it's a, it's that weird thing about fascism where they're sort of, their ideology is sort of hollow. So it can sort of fill whatever container like it has, right? Yeah. There's, there is like, um, what it is a lot easier to sort of be a Nazi opportunist maybe than it is to sort of be an opportunist and still get to call yourself a, a communist like successful successful communists are extremely principled successful fascists are extremely whatever we can take mm -hmm. yeah i think you're right <laughs> So, okay, so, okay, we all know that Gladio, like a major, so the original reason for it was in case of a Soviet invasion, there would be these stay-behind armies that could 
resist the Soviets, right? On paper, that was the purpose. And then as that basically didn't happen and nor did it seem realistically likely to happen, these stay-behind armies basically became involved in like doing a strategy of tension, right? To basically like keep the countries from going even socialist themselves, right? Yeah. Through acts of terrorism. And I guess like (laughs) to some extent tricking fringe people attracted to fringe ideologies into being some weird bastardized version of Nazi Maoism was part of it, or at least that was a position that they took to make themselves seem less like just overt Nazis, right? Yeah, like, uh, I I mean, I think it sort of varied where, like, Theory Art's version of Nazi Maoism was a lot more crypto-fascist than, like, Freda's very overt sort of... Uh, like Nazi Maoism that's like outwardly calling itself Nazi Maoism. Uh, so it sort of comes in different flavors, but in, in Theory Art's case, it was definitely sort of creating this plausible deniability where it's like, no, we're national communists who love national liberation movements and you should join our party instead of the Belgian Communist Party. Whereas, sort of, in Freda's case, it was like, yeah, we are Nazi Maoists. We want, we're third positionists. Uh, if you're a, a wild uh, youth, come join us. And hey, wouldn't it be funny if you went to that agricultural bank with uh, this briefcase? <laughs> so, okay. So, which one do you think is the Diet Coke and which one's the Coke? Do you think Freda's the Coke and then Tyriard is the Diet Coke? I I I think Freda's got to be the Coke, uh, which I mean, hmm. Actually, that's tough. I I know, right? I'm 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 immediately flip flopping. I, I I think I'm gonna have to say Tyriard's the Coke, but uh, uh, Freda is the Diet Coke. Here's the Hegelian synthesis. It, maybe Tyriard is actually the Coke Zero. Ooh. All right. Maybe one of them's Pepsi. Hmm. That could work. Yeah. Uh, Theory Art was Coke. Uh, Then uh, Fredo was Pepsi, and Theory Art uh, became New Coke. Man, they would be so pissed if they knew this metaphor because they all hated American imperialism. (laughs) Exactly. Baby, you're 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 baby, you
Оглянуться не успел и все закончилось А еще вчера пекла мама пончики Мир скукожился и лопнул Робин Бобинам Оглянуться не успел и над гробие В щековину червяки смачно стрескают С челобитными родня делить наследство И все растащат как шакалы, все что нажито На кого же ты покинул, ну и как же ты? Оглянуться не успел и все закончилось Похоронный марш играет вместо кольщика Вили-вили телекинули и скинули Либо лают, либо бегают как кончие Отрыдается вдова, снимет мальчика Голова в кустах от уловища в ящике Рассосались все, кто клялись, были падлами Черви смуглые, руки дряблые Баловал, вырубил, да обманывал Да ходил по головам на реманами Кэш валился, скруч, твой мешок скруч Ехать в рай хотел с набитыми карманами Мали, 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 я самый богатый селезень в мире Командир, ехай нахуй, яху! Командир, ехай нахуй, яху! Командир, ехай нахуй, яху! Командир, ехай нахуй, яху! Все прошло ты в гробу, старомодный багряный покрой. Урожай стрёмных слез, куча веников, туманно. Сколько было друзей, когда стол был завален икрой. Сколько было подруг, когда зелень хрустела в карманах. Оглянуться не успел, и все скинули С пионерских лагерей вы исправительный Клятвы вечной любви, блеск отрядной свечи В церкви тает свеча, как туман над могилой Уж намок тут венки на осенней грязи А червям все едино, шестерки ферзи Уставили и снобы, сачок и физрук Тебя примут охотно в свой потрепанный круг вот твой кореш с кем орал под гитару клен Вот девчуля в то, что по уши был влюблен Вот твой враг на танцах сломал тебе зуб Вот тот прапор, что шутил про козу на вазу Вот стероидных дебилов крыжистый кинсек Вот противный бомбила в потертой джинсе Рядом спят, как когда-то на постах менты Постаменты одинаковой высоты Командир, я кайф!
Okay, so we talked about Fredo, we talked about Terry Hart. Now, I think the most interesting legacy of Nazi Maoism, at least going off of what you've researched, would have to be this Luc Jure guy, right? All right, uh, yeah, so Luc Jure was... So here's how he ties into Nazi Maoism, and it's a little more tenuous than like uh say uh freda or theory arts direct involvement in organizing but basically uh here's how it goes down specifically uh jure had some connections to like the uh party uh communitary european now uh before that, uh, Jure, born in 1949, baby boomer, he was actually at first a member of the Wallonian Communist Youth before he gets involved in Theory Arts Party Communitari European, so you can already see how it's performing that function of splitting uh, the base of the Belgian Communist Movement. And then, after... <laughs> Did you see he was born in the Belgian Congo? So, like, he was like a settler, settler, too. Oh, wow. Like, yeah. <laughs> and he was like a freaking. Where did it say here? Like, he was like a paratrooper or something. Uh, yeah, I was just about to get that. He becomes a paratrooper again. Sus paratroopers. So, as a paratrooper, he. For the Belgian army, he gets deployed to fight on behalf of. Uh, Mobutu Sese Seko, who's in charge of uh, Zaire, uh, the former Belgian Congo, uh, to fight against the the front for the national liberation of the Congo, who are backed by uh, communists. Uh, so r- right there, it's sort of very interesting that you've got this former member of a communist youth group and known member of this party that's nominally very sympathetic to Maoism being deployed on an elite anti-communist mission unless something else is going on here. That's right. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so building off of that, like after his time being a paratrooper fighting on behalf of Belgian <laughs> imperialism. Uh, Jure gets really into uh, esoterica and the New Age movement and becomes sort of close friends with Joseph de Mambro, who's this other guy involved in sort of similar concepts. Now... Yeah, you, no, you know, he was like... He was really into homeopathy. I think he was like a homeopathic practitioner. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there lots, lots of crossover between homeopathy and fascism, as I think you touch on in the program. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, and you know, like 
in both cases, the Nazi malice seemed to have, like, a lot of crossover with Evola, the National Bolshevik movement, very Evola-inspired. Like, all of these guys already sort of are into esotericism to a little bit through Evola. Like, we talked about how <laughs> to getting started as a satanic neo-Nazi. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, like, uh, so Dre and DeMambro, they get along, um, and in 1984, they found uh, this little outfit called the Ordre du Temple Solaire, or the Order of the Solar Temple. Uh, originally, it's based in Switzerland before they decide to move things over to uh, Quebec with sort of like little branches all over the world. Which, can I just say, like, this is, you know, maybe my own ignorance, but for the longest time, I thought Quebec was, like, a normal place. <laughs> and then, every single time Quebec comes up, uh, for anything I'm researching, I find out that it's the most batshit insane place in North America, maybe? Oh, yeah, like... <laughs> it... It... It's fast. It's definitely a wildest place. Like, I don't know. Something about... I I, I consider the Quebecois to be Latino, uh, effectively, <laughs> since, you know, and they're romance-speaking Americans. Uh, and when you... It is not normal for, like, Latinos to be up that north, so things are going to get a little weird. <laughs> And I would say they were also similarly oppressed by the Anglos and the Americans. Oh, yes. Exactly. Oh, man. Uh, so, basically, uh, Order of the Solar Temple, they they say, hey, we are the heirs of the uh, Knights Templar. We're really into Rosicrucianism. We're really into theosophy. So... Yeah, you can probably tell where this is going, and uh, this whole like uh, Knights Templar thing. This is classic Gladio. Like, you know, before Gladio, there are a bunch of like sort of esoteric organizations that are calling themselves like successors of the Knights Templar. It's a very popular thing in Freemasonry, which a whole other thing to get into but like the the neo-templar movement that the order of the solar temple is like involved in is uh it starts out in like 1952 when this guy uh jacques brer uh goes to uh castle Origny and uh is visited by the masters of the temple so you've got that like that whole classic Oh, it's the hidden masters are are coming down to speak yeah. to me now, uh, and so the the Origny movement uh, becomes a thing, and Brer uh, establishes the Order Souverain du Temple Solaire, or Sovereign Order of the Solar Temple. Now, here's another spooky little addition uh, to the mix. Uh, Brer was. Uh, chatting up and in contact with uh, one Constantin Melnik, a uh, high-ranking French intelligence officer uh, who ran oh. the country's secret services in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, got training from the Rand Corporation, 
<laughs> and also organized uh, this little group called La Main Rouge, which assassinated Algerian independence supporters. So, like, Templars, Gladio, you, you see what we're sort of getting at here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, but anyway, I'm just still going down, like, the Templars upon Templars here. Uh, because whenever you get, like, these esoteric organizations... It, you get, like, successor groups and all sorts of stuff. Everybody wants to be a Templar. <laughs> oh, yeah, everyone. Everyone wants to be a Templar. Uh, man, I, one of these days, uh, I can probably go into depth on... Uh, yeah, I, I have this whole thing about, like, Templars and their own relation to, like, capitalism. Uh I will say, though, anytime you hear a group trying to emphasize the sun god aspect of Christianity, you know, you know you're headed for some mass suicides. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, or something. <laughs> well, anyway, back back to where we were. So Not, not to jump the gun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, spoilers there. All right. Uh, so... Sovereign Order of the Solar Temple has its ups and downs. You gotta have a successor organization. Now it's the Renewed Order of the Temple, founded by this guy, uh, Julian Oregas. God, European names. Uh, anyway, uh, Oregas was a Nazi collaborator. Again, another one of these guys. Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, he was imprisoned after World War II uh, for collaborating with the nazis um and then once he gets out he's still a fascist like prison hasn't really changed that so he gets involved with starting the renewed order of the temple with uh, jacques Brer and joseph de mambro the other part of uh our order of the solar temple duo for so Brer, de mambro and orgas are the three guys founding renewed order of the temple uh and sort of are in charge of it uh prior to orgas's death in 1983 but orgas definitely leaves like an ideological impression on the solar temple specifically white supremacy uh because like when jorette and the mambro moved to quebec they despise, like, the indigenous people who are there. Like... No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who, 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 would, who would have thought? <laughs> so, yeah, that's... Oh, man. Oh, uh, God. And there's more shit tying them into Gladio. Oh, man. I'm... <laughs> Whenever you get into this... Like, you can never be the member of just one, like... Templar organization apparently you have to be like involved in six different <laughs> you gotta collect them all <laughs> yeah exactly oh man uh, so like Jorette and the Mambro were also allegedly members of another Templar organization called the Audre Souverain et Militaire du Temple de Jerusalem 
uh, <laughs> which uh, was uh, founded like in the early 1970s by this guy, Antoine Zrojewski, uh, and it had split off from a Templar organization with the exact same name. I kid you not. They both they both wanted to have the same name, but they split off from each. God, I Tem- Templars, man. These guys, they've got to have. Everyone's got to have their own club. Look, you have a good name. You're not giving it up. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so because it's a mouthful, calling them the OS. MTJ. They are uh, notable because they've got a lot of crossover with uh, Service de Action Civique, who are <laughs> basically, you know how I talked about at, earlier in the episode about how there were basically two competing Gladio branches that were like pro <laughs> and anti de Gaulle. Uh, this was the pro yeah. de Gaulle, like, secret army. Uh, that was, like, fighting against uh, OAS during, like, the Algerian War of Independence. Uh, So, like, you know, hey, you know, like, stop clocks and all, and thank you for your service. (laughs) Service the action civique in fighting for Algerian independence. Uh, But not to give them too much credit, since uh, the SAC also had strong ties to uh, Etienne Leandri, who was a member of the Corsican Mafia involved in the French Connection heroin trade. And in addition to all that, beyond like the service to actual civic overlap, OSMTJ had a lot of overlap with none other than Propaganda Due. <laughs> Which... Can I just say, like, we probably, both of us, we haven't emphasized that, like, Gladio has always also intersected with the drug trade, just as oh, it's intersected yeah. with, like, child porn and stuff. So, like, yeah. I, I'm, re- I'm a huge fan of Daniel Hopsicker's basic statement that, like, the, in, like, the ruling class of any given country is also in charge of its drug trade. Like, it's illicit drug trade. And like oh, I think yeah. Gladio is the, I I would argue the mechanism in Europe for controlling their underground drug trade. Would you agree? Absolutely, one hundred percent. I, I, any serious like cursory research of deep politics will just go to show that like. Uh, the moment that it became clear that Stalin wasn't going to, like, push the Red Army past, uh, like, the the border and, like, uh, try to invade France and Italy or something, they were like, okay, well, we've got all these guys here. Time to start pushing heroin. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. Yeah, we, we, we've, we've got all these networks set up. We really need the money. And we've got all these black people in Harlem who we really don't want getting politically organized. Uh, And, like, that's... That was how it was for, like... God, like, still now, today. 
but yeah basically so so i i cut you off so you were talking about propaganda due yeah like propaganda due uh very cursory overview because we've just gone through so much they these are like the most like we talked about Dutro affair is sort of like the the peak behind the curtain that just completely showed off like the child abuse networks that are involved in like gladio and deep politics propaganda due was basically like oh yeah the accusations of like secret fascist armies that the soviets uh were talking about that we always dismiss this propaganda they're very real and like <laughs> control the the politics of every european country <laughs> uh so like basically the most paranoid marxist during the cold war was completely vindicated and oh absolutely <laughs> like no one has like ever properly grappled with that like basic political fact yeah like <laughs> it's it is an incredibly non-discussed thing so like Philippe uh, Guarino Pasquale Gugliotta Pietro Muscolo Luigi Savona, these are all the members of OSMTJ who are also like propaganda due uh, pseudo-masons, basically. So <laughs> you, you've got a neo-Templar organization that has members of a right-wing secret army that has connections to the heroin trade and propaganda due the most documented branch of Operation Gladio we know of. It's fair to say that if these two guys were members of this organization, in addition to all of this other stuff, they probably were at least, like, adjacent to Gladio. Yeah, I would say this is really crazy stuff, too, because, like, when you read, like, and I'm I'm speaking to the listener here, when you read books about, like, Italian gladio or propaganda due like a lot of times they will try to explain the Freemason connection as like okay like this is just a pretext to get like bankers and mafiosos and like generals in the same room together but like when you realize that there's like this connection of esoteric occult spirituality in the mix things start to get things start to look a whole lot weirder than just like oh yeah they just need to get together to talk about money laundering like no there's like some deeper weirder shit going on yeah and i i think that with these guys you're always it's basically always some sort of mix like ratios little weird but and, and probably varies from group to group but there are going to be some guys who like are like all right, time to throw on the robes, watch, put on, get videotaped sodomizing a goat. Okay, <laughs> now we know for sure that, you know, I'm I'm in this, I'm not backing out. I'll, you know, do whatever nefarious deeds need to be done to stay in power. And then there are the guys like, yes, I want to ascend to... Uh, the city of pyramids in order to become a part of like the 
godhead and rule as some sort of like satanic ghost sorcerer for the rest of time and you know it's it's going to be different uh from organization to organization how many are one or the other right and like like either way for the two positions you just outlined we're talking like bankers nato generals like politicians like yeah. you you never know who's just doing it to be in the group and who's like serious about all this crowley horseshit but like the fact remains that someone's sodomizing a goat on camera or someone is doing an orgy someone's wearing templar robes like it doesn't really matter if you believe it or not after a certain point right though certainly yeah. many of them did you know like if it walks on cloven hooves and smells of brimstone, uh, like, uh, classify it as you like, it, it is effectively a demon. <laughs> but, alright, speaking of which. Yeah, okay, so that was the uh, P2 Lodge connection, but like, okay, the Order of the Solar Temple, where do we go from here? Uh, I mean, okay, so, like... Uh, I I think maybe it's worth going over like what they were sort of into as a mm -hmm. cult sort of, uh, which you know it's it's really similar in a lot of ways to like uh, uh, some aspects of like I, obviously they were incorporating a lot of Christianity into it, but they were also incorporating aspects of Hermeticism. Theosophy, Rosicrucianism, Thelema, they were <laughs> describing Christ as a solar being, uh, <laughs> a lot of emphasis on the sun. They, they were talking about uh, there was going to be this grand merger of Christianity and Islam when Jesus came back to rule over the earth as a solar god king. Uh, aspects of Freemasonry and the rituals, sort of a little like hints of ufo religion stuff in there uh basically at a certain point they were just like throwing in the kitchen sink in terms of like uh western esoteric traditions that y you sort of have to yeah there was like christian identity in the mix yeah like christian identity which suggests that there was definitely like an influence of far-right politics in there, considering the guy, like, one of the guys was part of a Nazi Maoist party, and they really seemed to hate in indigenous Americans, so that might have been, like, a bigger part of their group's ideology than, like, is probably led on in a lot of different uh, sources we usually get on them. Yeah. And then, so, like, I wanted to shout out the uh, the central authority of the group being the Synarchy of the Temple, which, like, Synarchy, oh man. So what is Synarchy for the listeners? Uh, like, the basic definition of Synarchy is, like, uh, sort of a joint rule or harmonious rule. It, it basically means... Uh, 
<laughs> rule by a secret elite. You know, very... Just what you want. Like, hey, uh, people who, like, read, uh, like, conspiracy fiction were like, you know, we could really use someone like that. We could... I think this is actually the ideal sort of way to organize things. Illuminati, so, like, you say? <laughs> yeah. Uh, synarchism as a political movement basically uh is big in vichy france where uh it gets big in like the 1930s uh, as part of uh la cagoule la cagoule which is sort of this you know anti-communist terrorist group that basically does like terrorism up until uh the nazis invade france and take over which which i would say i would (laughs) i would just recommend the listeners like i'll I'll post a thread with images but like you should google kagul (laughs) like (laughs) the actual group uh on image search because like terrifying they're wearing like horrifying Ku Klux Klan ass masks like not a not a good group yeah uh, it's a lot like uh, like it very much resembles that whole like veiled prophet thing that they have in uh, where is that again Missouri Uh, St. Louis yeah Missouri St. Louis like it's very veiled prophet and you know, sort of similarly ideologically motivated. And the other main place that synarchism was big was in sort of like Mexico, where like both Mm -hmm. in France and Mexico, it's like extreme far-right Catholicism, fascist, anti-communist, and all of it is also sort of influenced by uh, basically uh, the occult traditionalist movement that sort of uh, Guénon is a part of. uh, The the first person to put it, like, synarchism together was uh, Alexandre Saint-Yves de Alvedre, another man whose name I've probably mangled. Another guy who talked to, like, Ascended Masters and uh, was really into, uh, like, Rosicrucianism and the Templars. Listen, I've talked to the Ascended Masters, and they say that the worst elements of society should just stay in power. (laughs) Yeah, and and really convenient stuff. I'm starting to think the Ascended Hidden Masters are actually just the intelligence agencies. (laughs) Yeah, and so, and and then sort of, so, like, synarchism, when you trace it all the way back to, like, uh, De Alvedre, you get to uh, Guénon and, like, his ideas about traditionalism and occultism, and he, in turn, is, like, a major influence on Evola, and Evola is, like... The guy who all the Nazi Maoists love. So, snake eating its own tail. You, it all ends up connecting together in that sort of way. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, jeez. And then one other thing too was was the uh, 
the solar temple had a top 33 members so obviously there's just a bunch of freemason bullshit mixed in oh yeah like obviously i from what i've looked at i think sometimes the the 33 connections can get a little overblown but i i mean in this case it's so obviously like intended as a yeah. masonic reference given everything else that the group is doing that yeah there's definitely you get neo templars they're basically going to just rip off the freemasons for a lot of their stuff because that's like the cut and dry secret society format like <laughs> In the late 19th century in America, you even had, like, labor unions who were using Masonic tactics to, like, avoid the bosses uh, breaking them up. It just works. Yeah, what exactly. What can I say? So, let me ask you this, because I haven't looked as much at this cult as I would like, but about how many people was it worldwide? Because they were in a bunch of countries. Uh... Yeah, like, there was a decent number of people who were involved. Like, it was definitely enough that they existed in uh, Spain and, like, Germany. And obviously they were present in Switzerland, even if, like, the main presence was in uh, Quebec. But honestly, I don't know the specifics about necessarily sort of the the numbers overall that were actually involved in the Order of the Solar Temple. So I'm seeing now that they are still around, and so they have about 500 members now. So I feel like it would have been higher back then. Yeah. I I think they were definitely small, like, Mm -hmm. compared to a lot of other organizations, but small can, for, like, some sort of international order can be like a few thousand because there was sort of an element of like elitism right this is still a cultism so like this wasn't like recruiting rando people on the streets yeah like there's there's an understanding of like initiation and uh selective nature to the whole like involvement with like levels and grades so it's not necessarily a mass organization a lot of the people were actually quite well educated weren't they yeah and i mean i think that's another thing where like a decent number of cults don't necessarily well it's varies from uh faction faction but yeah this was definitely a cult that was sort of appealing to like middle-class well-educated people who tend to be like the main audiences for like ceremonial occult magic yeah i don't think you're getting like poor people to dress up like templars that feels like a rich person thing (laughs) yeah it's definitely like you you sort of got to be at least like a a professional or, or petite bourgeois to really sort of get into the whole like uh dressing up as an ancient knight the kind of the kind of cults that poor people go in tend to look a lot more like conventional churches yeah i think so so okay and then so if we're talking about the average like 
ritual. We're talking like people dressed up like crusaders, like with swords and stuff. Like we're talking like vaguely either Masonic or like some sort of like maybe like Gnostic, almost like a Crowleyan type of rituals. But like yeah, everyone like, dressed up like a crusader. Yeah, effectively. Uh and actually like uh it was very expensive to be a member of the Order of Solar Temple. Uh, because you had to basically like get a bunch of jewelry and like a, a new costume with uh full regalia for every like uh degree that you moved up and you had to pay a fee. <laughs> so like, Sounds and, like a good hustle. <laughs> yeah, and they they even had a sword that, like, uh, Joseph the Mambro would show him and was like, yeah, this is actually from the Knights Templar. They gave it to me. Uh, so, like, you can check it out. I, I had this sword a thousand years ago, back when I was a Templar in another life. Very... Hells, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, um... But this yeah. all sounds like good. This sounds like good fun. I mean, I don't know. Oh yeah, I mean, what could possibly like, go wrong? <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Well, in 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 1994, ten years after like the Solar Temple proper was set up, things went uh, very wrong when Joseph de Mambro uh, murdered that uh, a three-year-old infant should be killed because it was the Antichrist uh, as. And well, also, I'm glad they. I'm glad they stopped that. I guess. Oh yeah, like uh, no, bullet dodged there. Well, probably not for the kid, but <laughs> the Mambro orders the kid dead, and then the kid's parents, who are like members of the Solar Temple, he wants them dead, and then within a week of those murders, uh, like the core membership of like the OTS in Quebec are dead in a mass murder-suicide. Like, Jurette, Demambro, 51 other people, all in, like, poison, strangulation, gunshots. So, you know, like, looking at this, it's sort of like, oh, uh, apocalypse cult brought on paranoid delusions. Uh, you know, case closed. Uh, let's go home. Uh, let, grab some donuts on the way back to the station. Yeah. But, <laughs> big old but... Let's shift back a little. A few years uh, earlier, the Order of the Solar Temple are actually being investigated by, like, the Canadian government because they're doing some weird stuff potentially related to this, like, terrorist group that no one really knows anything about called Q-37. Okay. And, like, the interest in Q37 comes about after, like, there are uh, several attempts to purchase illegal firearms. Um, so, apparently, Q37 was uh, threatening several, like, ministers in the Canadian government because they were too friendly to indigenous Americans. Oh, jeez. Yeah, like... Uh, too friendly. Mind you, this yeah. is Canada. <laughs> yeah, this is Canada. Like, you're being too nice to indigenous Americans. And th that's enough to push us to violence. Canada, the fake country that's basically just mining corporations. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so, Q... So, almost as soon as, like, the Q37 accusations are being brought up against the Solar Temple, poof, they're gone. Like, no one brings up anymore. Talk to the Quebecois. I, I pulled a porky pig there. Give me a second. Talk to the Quebecois police, and now... No such thing as Q37 ever existed. Fake. Uh, so, this whole, like, Q37 thing. Uh, in the context of Jorette and the Mambro's backgrounds, the sudden disappearance of, like, any interest in investigating it, and, like, Oh, yeah. Uh, probably should have mentioned this up front. Members of, like, the Order of the Solar Temple were required to engage in weapons training? Wait a minute. Well, obviously, because you want to be a Templar, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. They, they were a warrior brotherhood. Yeah, a warrior brotherhood. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, and, and since they're Neo-Templars, you, you can't just use, like, long swords anymore. You've got to... You've got to start uh, wielding, like, complex firearms. Uh, and ones that are illegal and that sort of... Once you get into, like, uh, OTS guys bringing around illegal firearms, Jorette and the Mambro's backgrounds, Q37 accusations pop up, disappear. Does... The whole sort of mass suicide thing look a little sussier. Oh yeah. Well, let me let me ask you this, okay? So, um, I don't know, and maybe we can cut this or whatever. But like, have, do you listen to the Farm Podcast at all? Oh, I I, I don't actually. Uh... Oh, okay. Um, ah. so that I would say like really good stuff, right? But like, yeah. Uh, they did this big, long look at a thing called the Great White Brotherhood. Oh, yeah, like the theosophy concept? Yes, uh, but in the United States, it has ties to, like, biological weapons and possibly, like, the Jean Benet Ramsey case and, like, oh, wow. act, acts of terrorism that have happened and possibly Satanist groups. Oh, jeez. And it's, like, very understudied. And then when I was looking at the Luc Jure information, I noticed that uh, the Solar Temple, quote, offered a program of personal spiritual progress through the practice of occult disciplines and rituals that invoked the power of the Great White Brotherhood to bring forth the New Age. Now, I, you're right. Like, the term Great White Brotherhood originally, I think, is, like, a theosophical term. But, like considering that there was a United States Great White Brotherhood and a French one, and they both were involved in really heavy terrorist shit. Like, it just makes me think, what is going on? Yeah, like, at, at that point, you, 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 you've got you to gotta start wondering, like, the distinctions between the two become a little blurrier. Um, oh, and one last detail that sort of 
makes the whole mass suicide angle a little weirder. Um, right before he died, uh, Joseph de Mambro sent his passport to the French Minister of the Interior. Uh, and French Minister of the Interior was one Charles Pasqua, who was one of the co-founders of Service d'Action Civique. <laughs> so, you know, like, weird last thing to do before, like, the core membership of your cult gets murder-suicided. <laughs> uh, I feel like, in some ways, this is almost more transparent than Jonestown. I mean, I think that with Jonestown, you can kind of tell if you really actually dig in. But, like, this almost seems more clear. Yeah, like, when you look at, like, at the Q37 shit and, like, just sort of uh, cursingly that alone just makes it so incredibly suspect that, like, Mm -hmm. in combination with... Like, these guys' backgrounds where you've got uh, all of the overlap between Templar organizations and, like, documented Gladio guys and, like, then Jure's connection back to the Nazi Maoists. It just... Uh, the pattern of coincidences, like, even if... Order of Solar Temple wasn't, like, some sort of, like, Canadian Gladio side project. Like, as much of a benefit of the doubt, they're just an ordinary mass suicide cult. It really goes to show how much overlap there is between, like, esoteric orders, fascist organizations... And, like, intelligence services. Yeah, no. And, like, what really gets me is that, like, with Jonestown, that was, like, one location, one group of people. Heaven's Gate, that was one location, one group of people. But, like, with the Solar Temple, we're talking a mass suicide in Quebec, a mass suicide in Switzerland, a mass suicide in a different part of Switzerland, I think, then mass suicides in France... Like, there was, like, several different clusters of mass suicides. Like, it wasn't even just at the same time, necessarily, right? Yeah, it was, like, this cascading effect, basically. Which is, like, almost unparalleled, at least to my knowledge, in cults, basically. So, for one thing, that's notable. Um, another thing that sticks out to me is that they there was, like, a... Because we talked about there was sort of a UFO element, but like they had like this idea that they would be like when they died that they'd be going to Sirius, the the planet, or is it a star? I don't. Uh, the star, I believe. Yeah, but they they had the idea that they were going to travel there, you know, astrally or whatever. And like, I'm personally kind of fixated on Sirius as a recurring meme in like. UFO cults because it's like UFO cults are transparently like intelligence operations, right? I mean, I don't, I feel like you would probably not disagree. Yeah, there, there's some 
serious overlap, I, I'd have to say. Yes. And like anytime you get like recurring memes, like there's the Greys, which was probably some Crowley stuff. There's the Pleiadians, which are just like, what if like Scandinavians were aliens? <laughs> Like, what if the aliens looked like white people? <laughs> and then, like, there's the recurring Sirius thing. And Sirius Dogstar. There's, like, weird Satanist, like, themes in that. But, like, there's only so many playbooks. And they just use the same ones over and over. And for whatever reason, these guys were into Sirius. Probably because of some satanic undertone or concept. But, like, it just... Even if it's just for a matter of, like, tracing, like, what influence, I feel like it's important to know, like, <laughs> that they were, like, fixated on Sirius for whatever reason. Yeah, like, it's really interesting. Sirius sort of gets tossed around a lot in sort of occult contexts. And, like, yeah, uh, yeah it's also, uh, there's a big sort of, like, uh, micro industry around like going over to uh god uh there's a whole theosophy uh connection there where Sirius plays a pretty significant role there and yeah there's this mm-hmm. little cottage industry about like uh you know like there are some people in Africa who uh like the Dogon or Sarah people both sort of have an interest in <laughs> uh serious and then you've got like pseudo archaeological people who come in and are like oh this is a part of their connection to aliens from Sirius where it's mostly just like these tribes have like pretty considerable history with like studying astro- astronomy for like agricultural purposes yeah so it's like they're like rather than it being interesting how different cultures look at astronomy it's like oh yeah no they were clearly like in contact with aliens and the people who say that the ancient alien people are always fucking nazis they are nazis like yeah like there is a significant overlap and i mean i i I will admit that like i have some i i I think that there is something to, like, pre-Iron Age, like, lost technologies or something like that. Sure, I I just mostly think that they were, like, developed domestically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I, I'm willing to entertain a lot of things, but only up to a point and only with any shred of evidence whatsoever, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's everything, unless there was anything else that, like, came to mind for you. No, so, I mean, I guess I would just ask you, in your opinion, so what was the point of the Order of the Solar Temple? Like, we see enough fingerprints to know that, like, intelligence services were, like, kind of behind it, and sort of also the Nazis. But, like, what what would this actually be used for? What was it good for? I mean, yeah, that's one of the main things that I sort of grapple with because, like, there are all these indications that, you know, there's sort of usefulness that it has to them, but then, like, again, to what end? Like, one thing might be sort of... This is, like, 
early 90s, so there is some overlap with, like, McVeigh at the time, right? Like, that's sort of the Mm -hmm. same time window, so I could see it sort of them trying to serve the same sort of purpose, maybe. Hmm. Well, okay, let me... Let me ask you, so if, okay, if Jonestown was being used sort of to, like, draw in people to this faux leftist group and then shitcode it, basically, and to be like, look, Marxism-Leninism is wrong, because this guy who said he was a Marxist-Leninist killed 900 of his followers, even though, like, he clearly never, you know, entertained or actually followed any Marxist-Leninist like guidelines or actions whatsoever. He was like freaking, he was a cult leader, right? But like, so before the mass suicide too, like making a cult, like in Guyana could have been instrumentalized as a useful thing for spying. Um, I know that like Jim Jones was prior to that in California his group was used as a political block for voting purposes in San Francisco. Um, so like, I know that like for Jonestown, they were being instrumentalized for different purposes up to whatever point where they decided to pull the plug. I know you, you mentioned that like for the solar temple, they were like (laughs) aggressively fighting politicians who are friendly to indigenous people. So, I mean, yeah. That's like, one thing, right? That that was the one thing was like you know, uh aggressiveness towards indigenous peoples. Another thing might have been some sort of false flag attack that was in the works and then like scrapped because it turned out to be like way too sloppy. Uh, mm-hmm. and I don't, it's really hard to tell and it's sort of all complicated by like the weird international nature of the solar temple as an organization, like, you know, the fact that they had like the branch in Switzerland and in France. So it might've been sort of even just a case of like, these guys are leftovers. They're re- they're just like the sort of runoff from Operation Gladio that like has to sort of be kept in uh, reason. They want to keep it in like a more sort of contained area, considering they don't really have any immediate use for them at the moment. And then when they start getting a little too riled up about, like, indigenous Americans, they end up having to pull the plug. Again, it's... Yeah, because, like, I see that they also had a presence in Australia and Martinique and also Spain. So it's just like, well, there's obviously espionage purposes. And then Martinique, I'm sure, like, there's reasons for the French to try to hold on to that. Like, yeah, but I I do get the impression that anytime there's a mass suicide that like some federal agent just had like the worst year filling out paperwork, trying to like 
deal with that. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. Like it, it, it's tough where like in some cases there's like, uh, a, a bunch of evidence of like clear motivation and understanding and then a sort of, uh, an, an event that we know very little about but in this case it's sort of i guess the opposite where we know a lot about like sort of these surrounding events that suggest it was some sort of like and gladio jason op gone wrong and then things just sort of collapse and we don't know like w- were they just sort of going to be used as like muscle to keep indigenous peoples in line was this supposed to be some sort of like uh domestic terror uh unit for like shoring up uh you know more funding for some sort of like domestic uh like intelligence funding was like it becomes weird and sort of hard to tell what this would be used for and it it could have even just have been like Jorah and Namambro were like people who had been involved in Gladio and like ended up with inflated egos and wanting to actually you know really do this sort of whole cult thing and utilize gladio tactics to reach their goals and ended up getting in way over their head when they tried to go out on their own yeah so i just saw this source uh this article called french magistrate rejects idea that outsiders killed cultists which to me sounds a whole lot like oh did outsiders kill the cultists (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean was it like one one faction of the deep state was just like, oh, fuck, no, we're not doing this plan. We're not going to release a bioweapon. We need to go kill these this stupid cult. Yeah, like, oh, uh, <laughs> I, I, I could also see it like, you know, we have documents of like secret armies fighting each other. It, it could be like interfactional warfare where it's like, you know, one part of like the deep politics network wants you know the solar temple to do x y and z for them and then another faction is like no fuck you that's (laughs) screwing up our plans we need to go clean this up you go find something else to do (laughs) yeah david koresh ran up on the order of the solar temple with his gang So I guess I would say this, uh, for any of my perspective or for any of my listeners who are thinking of joining cults, make sure you join one that is politically useful, like the Moonies, perhaps, uh, maybe just do not join one that seems to be, uh, worshiping the sun or doesn't seem to have connection to one of the two major political parties. That would be my you know, actionable advice. What about you? Well, there goes my plans. I'm, that 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 was exactly what I was planning on organizing, so I don't know what I'm going to do now. <laughs> when can we look forward to the e cult? Uh, it, it, 
launching uh, 2022, uh, going under 2032. <laughs> All right. Cool. Now, do you have any final thoughts, I guess, uh, on it, all of these topics, I guess? I mean, when we look at this in a really broad perspective and sort of, uh, like, the Solar Temple was a little bit of the tangent for from the main topic of, like, Nazi Maoists, but I guess what it kind of goes to show is that, like, just because someone makes overtures to the left does like left-wing posturing uh sort of engages in certain like uh aesthetic choices that doesn't inherently make them like an ally or your friend i i think that's like obvious enough and you know like when when it's a guy calling himself a Nazi Maoist, like it, it, the sort of response is like, "No, duh, thanks for th- thanks for pointing that out." But you know, I think it's useful to be skeptical of groups that sort of emphasize like. Uh, a, 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 some sort of communist nationalism, I suppose. Like, n- n- treat them with a grain of salt. I don't think they're gonna all be spooks or, like, agents of political networks, but people who try to, like, synthesize right-wing nationalism with communism aren't engaging in worthwhile political projects in my eyes yeah i think so i mean best case scenario you're going to be like in a larouche call center defrauding elderly people and worst case scenario you're being asked to either take a briefcase somewhere or to uh put on a crusader's robe and kill yourself yeah (laughs) like oh man like wor- worst case scenario y- you are <laughs> yeah like uh when when they start synthesizing like uh communist aesthetics with right wing nationalism that's bad when they start talking about the solar logos and like uh <laughs> uh joining all of the churches of Europe and Islam into w- one force uh that is like uh now you definitely are like in too late you are past the point of no return (laughs) yeah (laughs) all right well that was a great conversation uh and i would recommend checking out ebegan's writings certainly follow him on twitter uh do you want to plug your handle and your uh patreon and such all right uh sure yeah thanks um on Twitter, I am ebegan one uh, I've got Substack, ebegan.substack.com, and I'm ebegan on Patreon. Uh, only $2 a month gets you, like, early drafts of stuff that I write, and, like, also some exclusive notes about, like, this was where I had a lot of my research on Nazi Maoism from, and, uh... Yeah, uh, that's about it.
Excellent. We will definitely have to figure out some topic to do in the future, I think. Oh, There's yeah. There's more than enough for something. I don't know. I, I think, like, in this episode alone, we, like, briefly touched on enough, like, half a dozen things that deserve their own episode, honestly. You know what's one that I would like to do maybe one day? And I don't want to, like, I would rather have a conversation about it than to do it on my own, would be LaRouche, because... Oh, God, yes. <laughs> like, you know that, like, I like the uh, Subliminal Jihad episode they did, and it was pretty, like, traditional, but, like, there's so many, like, weird little, like, divergences, and, like, like there's so many weird little subplots to that that I would just love to, like, just shoot the shit on. Oh, yeah, like, the entire LaRouche saga is so all over the place and like the weird sort of he's like the godfather of a lot of like weird online political strains nowadays even ones that like don't upfront like rep him as their guy he's like the fr- one of the first meme ideologies like even more than like <laughs> like nazi maoism is pretty close but like it's almost more like <laughs> Just making oh, yeah. things up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, again, it's... God, LaRouche is just one of those guys, like, as spooky as he is, you've got to, you, you've got to admire that, like, at certain points he was just incorporating, like, his own, like, personal preferences into his politics, like, yeah, uh, actually, all the, mu- all the classical musicians who I like are, uh, actually warriors of, uh, platonic perfection, and all the ones that I don't like are, uh, Aristotelian demons who serve the Queen of England, like, which- go off. Which, I mean, not to actually get into LaRouche, but, like, one thing that I absolutely love is that, like, Ayn Rand's guy was Aristotle. But, like, (laughs) they don't seem all that different. And I don't, to my knowledge, think that LaRouche ever really talked about Ayn Rand. But, like, she was, like, an Aristotle fangirl. So I was just like, what? (laughs) if we're pretending that he's serious about being against the Aristotelians... Never really came up, right? <laughs> yeah, it is, it is weird. I mean, like, to be fair, you do have, like, I think, like, LaRouche's real sort of, like, uh, counterpart, uh, like, equal, equally sort of, well, probably a lot more uh, politically noxious is actually probably, like, Karl Popper, because his whole thing is, like, Oh, everyone who's influenced by Plato is, like, the root of all evil in politics, and we need, like, Aristotelian liberalism, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Oh, jeez. All right. Well, um, yeah, thank you for appearing on the show. Oh, it was a blast. I am happy to come on anytime, honestly. Love this stuff.